0: What began as a college course on dating has evolved into an honest, in-depth look at what college students think about religion, sex, and spirituality. Good morning. I'm Robin Shannon. On this week's Fordham Conversations, author and professor Donna Friedis joins us. Friedis recently spoke at Fordham University about her experiences crisscrossing the country researching students at a range of public and private schools. Along her journey, she uncovered surprising and touching aspects of college life straight from the students themselves. I invited her into the studio to share her experiences and discuss her often revealing book, Sex and the Soul, Juggling Sexuality, Spirituality, Romance, and Religion on America's college campuses. How did you come up with the idea to study the relationship between sexuality and spirituality on college campuses?
1: Well, there was a, a combination of things that happened. I noticed that uh, since I was a professor that always taught the courses with spiritual and spirituality in the title and had all these students signing up because they were excited about the word, one of the things I noticed was that they seemed to, to really perk up when we got to the part of the course where we talked about sexuality and dating. And so it seemed to be this um, this place where they really wanted to Intersect, I guess, spirituality and sexuality, and that surprised me. Um, but the other thing that happened was uh, two studies were published, two big national studies, and they were looking at the reasons why uh, teen spirituality and re- religiosity, and also college student spirituality and religiosity, were shifting or uh, or changing during this particular area of life. And I noticed that neither study paid attention to sex. And according to my students, that seemed to be the number one factor that could really drive you away from a religious tradition. And so I decided to investigate it.
0: Tell me how your research got started and move me through the beginning of the process to how you became, how you got got to the book.
1: Well, it was quite a journey. The research started because of uh this one particular course I taught on dating and spirituality. And the students in that class uh did a kind of grassroots movement on campus where They figured out over the course of the semester that they were unhappy with hookup culture. And when they all figured out they were on the same page about this, which was a big surprise to them that they didn't like hookup culture when they were honest with each other, they really wanted to have a campus conversation about it, and they wanted to begin to respond to their feelings of unhappiness and stress about it with spiritual wisdom, spiritual and theological wisdom. And so I watched my class really mount this movement on campus and so i started to wonder if students felt like this on other campuses and you know again this these other studies were published and i started to think wow you know, we're really missing a conversation that students want to have about sexuality and spirituality and religion. They're really stressed about these issues and they want one to respond to the other and they feel like religion's not responding to to where they are in terms of these different questions and struggles. So anyway, suddenly I was proposing for uh, to get a grant and <laughs> I got it and, and then I was traveling around the US uh, to these different campuses talking to students about these same issues. And uh, six students from that original class were my research assistants and advisors as I um, as I did this project.
0: Now, you said hookup culture, and you talked mm-hmm. a lot about that in the book. What is that?
1: You'll often hear people define a hookup as... Uh, as anything from kissing to different types of sex, and people talk about how it's notoriously hard to define because it really can range through all kinds of intimacy. It's casual, and it's, it's very transitional in the sense that it can take anywhere from 10 minutes to a night, maybe, and, uh, and so it's, it's very brief. A successful hookup is one in which students really shut themselves off emotionally. And so the goal is to have a purely physical encounter. And really in hookup culture, students are training themselves to shut down emotionally and to not feel connected with the other person. And the reason why hookup culture seems to be so stressful to students and really sends a lot of them into a crisis of meaning um, is the fact that they're really bad at that piece. Both men and women are really bad at shutting themselves off emotionally. And so that's where they end up um, getting to this place where they feel really empty, feel really exhausted, and they seem to be turning to spirituality when they get there.
0: Okay. I want to talk about the four types of institutions that were used in your research. Uh, You looked at evangelical colleges, Catholic colleges, non-religious private schools, and non-religious public schools, correct? So how different were the campus cultures at each of these schools?
1: Well, I grouped the school types into two groups when I ended up writing about this project, because uh, what one would think, I guess, that the religiously affiliated schools would line up with each other and the non-religiously affiliated uh, schools would line up with each other, but that's not how the results came out. Um, really, I, I ended up grouping Catholic, non-religious, private, and public institutions together because when it came to attitudes about sex and hooking up and spirituality and religion, the students were almost indistinguishable across those campus cultures. And so the campus cultures were, were very similar. But at evangelical colleges, uh, there wasn't hookup culture at all. Um, it, there was a whole different campus culture. And so really there's two separate conversations that I ended up having to have uh, when it came to talking about the results of the study.
0: So what were the two different conversations that you had? Let's look at both of those.
1: Well, um, I mean, in the first place, I was very interested not just to look at students individually but at campus culture just because one of the things I've learned from my students and with anybody who looks at social norming, for example, is that often what, um, what students think their peers think about something is far more influential than what they actually think themselves. And so they're more, much more likely to act on um, what they think their peers will do as opposed to what they really want to do. And that became so clear with my students in this class I taught on dating and also seemed to be what was supporting hookup culture on the campus um, that I was teaching at at the time. I mean, basically what I found at the Catholic non-religious private and public schools uh, was was hookup culture, was this very intense um, feeling of pressure to be having all sorts of sex that both men, men and women feel, even if it's for different reasons. And a real dissatisfaction with that over the long term. And so Whereas it's not so much that all the students I spoke with thought all hookups are bad or didn't want to necessarily have sex or anything like that, but it seemed that living in the context of hookup culture on their campuses um, over, the, over the long haul, over you know, several months or you know several years, was really difficult for them. And so I, what I met in students on these campuses was an incredible amount of stress about hookup culture, an incredible amount of anger from many students, especially Catholic students, about the way that religion, they felt, had really left them or kind of abandoned them on this issue, and then some hope that spirituality was maybe this place that they were going to find um, a way to dig out of this situation that they were in. Which was so interesting, and then at evangelical colleges, um what I found was uh was what I talked about in the book is you know purity culture, so there 's really a culture of of chastity, of purity, where um, where you have college students who are aspiring to marry, at least women are, by the time they graduate. And there's an inc- what they face is an incredible amount of stress to not have sex. And not only not to have sex, but almost to completely erase any uh, evidence of sexuality that they have until they get married. And so you have students who are really navigating uh, a pretty extremely... Restrictive attitude about sexuality, and then feeling like their you know their peers are you know all sort of watchdogs, um, trying to figure out if they're measuring up or not. So um, so anyway, there was stress about these issues on both campuses, and stress related to religion in relation to sexuality in both both different types of campuses. But the campus cultures themselves were very distinct.
0: And now, in your book, uh, Sex and the Soul, Donna, you talk about um, the senior scramble. So that goes along with the purity culture. So can you explain what the senior scramble is?
1: Sure. Uh, at Evangelical Colleges, one of the first things I heard about um, from both men and women was um, Was either the senior scramble or ring by spring or or your money back? That was the other tagline I heard, and I remember the first time I it was actually a young man who told me about it, and he looked he said when he said it he looked at me like I was going to know what he was talking about, and I almost fell off my chair when he said it, and so um, so basically the the idea for women at most of these colleges is that a successful college experience means you having a ring on your finger by the time you graduate and ideally being married by the time you graduate or having a date set at least and so and the pressure is really on the women to do the scrambling or to get the ring and what you have is a lot of what you end up with is a lot of women who when they're juniors or seniors if they don't have that ring feel incredibly lost and upset like they've failed college i heard a lot of women complaining about this and then i had a lot of young men who were also incredibly stressed about it because uh they sort of you know in some ways for some of them it was a joke that you know well you would sort of run away from all the women who were chasing after you for a ring or you were almost afraid to get into a relationship if you didn't feel like you were ready to get married because if you the The rumor was that if you dated a woman, you know, your senior year, the second you, you know, you went out on a date with her, she was going to assume that you were eventually going to give her her ring. So, um, so a lot of stress, stress on both sides and a lot of uh, anger among the women that they were experiencing this kind of double standard and this kind of pressure from culture on campus.
0: This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon, speaking with author Donna Freitas about her latest book, Sex and the Soul. To summarize, evangelical women believe that God has this husband already uh, picked out for them, and God will reveal to the man what wife he is to marry. Uh, then, when a courtship can begin, um, he'll, God will tell the man who he should marry, and then a courtship should begin. Correct? Is that along the lines of how it's supposed to go? More or less. Okay, so um, in the meantime, the female is supposed to wait patiently and follow God's will for her life, and this is the ideal for evangelical college women.
1: Well, there there is this sort of you know Cinderella story. I mean, even the books that are written you know talk about like you know, fairy tales in many ways. or you want to be Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty, they literally use those um, those you know archetypes to talk about how women should model themselves. And that you know they talk about men as princes who are going to come along, you know, Prince Charming, etc. And um, so, I mean, what you what you have is this. Um, this story, essentially, that students are trying to fit themselves into, but who often don't really fit into the story. And so you have both men and women struggling with these issues. And one of the things that was really interesting to me uh, was how many women found ways to uh, they sort of aspired to live this, you know, the fairy tale, but at the same time they were resisting it. And they, they had come up with all sorts of clever ways to get around the waiting and the being passive, because they felt very frustrated with being passive. They They knew that it was it was like this impossible game that they were supposed to play where somehow, you know, they if they liked someone, they weren't allowed to tell them because they were supposed to ideally wait for God to tell the guy who would then tell them that they liked him. And um, they weren't also supposed to flirt with the guy uh, to let them know that they liked they liked the person because then, you know, that sort of went against the rules. And, you know, so somehow they were supposed to magically let this person know. And then you had guys who actually were really stressed about not knowing know how to how to ask women out and feeling like they wanted to. So they were they – were all these students were really in a catch-22. And it was interesting. Um, there was one school I was at where they were planning like a Sadie Hawkins-like situation. The program was that men had to ask a woman out on a date. <laughs> and so they would essentially – they were orchestrating opportunities – to to get to go out on dates without actually doing the asking themselves and the dating and the courtship that was happening on these campuses in many ways was the fantasy they were living out the fantasies of the students at the other colleges <laughs> in the sense that I heard all these students at you know catholic private secular and public institutions that were Really wanting to get to go out on the kinds of dates and the kinds of you know romantic experiences that evangelical college students were living all the time
0: and and you also added um, with the purity culture that sometimes some of the women who actually were married felt a little uh, self righteous
1: yes there was um, there was a quite a lot of smugness, I guess I would say. I would say uh, it was pretty evident in the way that the young women I spoke with who had sort of lived the fairy tale or who were about to, who had, for example, gotten the ring on their finger, who had waited for their first kiss, you know, until they were engaged or maybe even at the altar, who had really sort of lived out that ideal story. They knew that they were rare. They knew that it was rare to to actually, you know, live the dream, so to speak. And so they did feel this an tremendous amount of pride, and um, they knew that they were set apart from your average student at the campus.
0: One woman in your book was extremely happy, and she said sex was great with her husband, Mm -hmm. everything was fine. Then there was a, a gentleman, I can't recall his name, who said he was concerned because a friend of his had revealed that after the wedding night that one party was satisfied and the other party wasn't, and no one really talked about what happens after you got married.
1: Well, there was all sorts of questions that the students had about what was all of this erasing of their sexuality you know that they were expected to do during college Uh, going to do after the fact you know how were you supposed to just suddenly turn it on you know magically after you you know walked away from the altar and the students did most of them did realize that there's some sort of disconnect (laughs) going on there and and they didn't know that it would just suddenly happen magically and so they were students who were investigating you know the pros and cons of of this expectation in different ways
0: This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. I'll be right back to continue my discussion with professor and author Donna Friedis about her latest book, Sex and the Soul, juggling sexuality, spirituality, romance, and religion on America's college campuses. In 1960, Dan and Toby Talbot opened the New Yorker Theater on Manhattan's Upper West Side. The theater brought cutting-edge films to the attention of moviegoers in New York City for more than a decade before closing in 1973. Hi, I'm George Bodarkey. Coming up on this morning's Cityscape, the Talbots talk about their life together at the movies. That's Cityscape, this morning at 7.30, right here on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Donna, what are
1: millionaires and maids uh, they are parties where students dress the part and where uh, the man dresses up as the professor, the CEO, the millionaire, the person who's in a position of power and authority, and the woman dresses up in whatever subservient you know position is in that pair. One of the things uh, that I spent a lot of time talking with my students about before I did the study was all the gender and class implications that you know were going on in these um, these particular, you know, parties that they were setting up, you know, and this was in the context of a gender studies course. So I had, you know, students who were gender studies majors who were going to these parties and not even thinking twice about it. These are the kinds of parties I think we used to imagine would just be present, for example, at fraternity houses or, you know, at frat parties and sorority parties. But it turns out these parties are just sort of ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And they seem to be more and more popular, actually, uh, as I go around talking to different campuses. So,
0: so uh, and take it back to your research, how did you get these students just to open up to
1: you? I wondered how many students would want to talk about these issues and if they would, you know, open up about them, if they would be honest, and of course you never know. There was a tremendous amount of response by the students in terms of there were far more students who participated than I ever dreamed. I set out for 400 students to take the online survey and 40 students to interview and I ended up with over 2,500 students who took the survey and over almost 600 volunteers for the, the, um, the interviews, which was astounding to me. But also, um, students really seem, even if they don't know what they think or if they're kind of lost on the topics of spirituality and sexuality, they seem to really be dying to talk about them with someone who will listen. So they really want the space to have a conversation. And so it wasn't that difficult at all. They were really, they came ready to talk. And you said in your
0: book uh, that many students' feelings towards organized religion was less about anger and apathy and more about hostility and apathy. Why is that?
1: Well, that was the Catholic students that I spoke with, or the students who grew up Catholic, uh, because there have been a lot of studies done on Catholic youth in particular, and you know why? Why are you know why is the Catholic Church hemorrhaging youth? And um, and also why you know and there's been this label of you know uh, Catholics Catholics are so apathetic. Catholic youth are, are they're so apathetic they don't care about their faith, etc. And there really is this perception that there's just apathy across the board and. I would say that apathy is the wrong word in the sense that um if you do studies where you don't talk to students, you know, one on one, you don't necessarily hear in their voices you know the emotion. You know, part of part of my job was to to not just listen to the words of the students, but also listen to how they talked about things. And so, you know, what I heard wasn't boredom or just um, you know, emotionless answers. I heard anger and a lot of passion coming out of the students, but most especially um, in the online journals that the students did, that's where they they just poured out, (laughs) you know, students who didn't necessarily have a lot to say in person in their interviews about religion or about the Catholic Church suddenly just sort of unleashed all sorts of emotion and anger and intensity. What were they angry Um, about? They, uh, I think a, a lot of the students feel really abandoned you know, as young adults in the Catholic Church, um, they feel like they've just been left, especially with regard to sex. But in in many you know aspects of their lives, they just feel like the Catholic Church is absolutely out of touch. And that, you know, in many ways, it's just one big no to everything that they're experiencing and doing and also just a refusal, a kind of turning its back on them as they grow up. And so they really feel like there's a big disconnect between the sort of institutional aspect of the Catholic Church and what they're actually living. And they don't know who to go to to um, to figure things out. And so and that's where a lot of the spiritual but not religious stuff comes in, where students are, are mad at their faith and they're saying there's nothing for me here, so I'm going to turn my back. But um, but apathy is, is definitely the wrong word.
0: And one of the things you mentioned in your book, you said that you found a lot of the students who were either in evangelical uh, schools or religious institutions had never heard about practical ways to live their life from the pulpit. Can you talk about that a little?
1: Well, you know, it's it's interesting because people are so concerned about um teen and young adult spirituality and religiosity in the United States and what's happening with it and, or what's shattering it or shifting it etc and you know in the midst of all this you know you have all these students who say that they're spiritual or interested in spirituality but they don't know how to define it i hear that all the time you know from colleagues and people are really frustrated that students don't know how to define it and I feel like, again, you know, we're, we're missing what's really important um, because what we have is, you know, an, you know, essentially an epidemic of young people who really want a spiritual life, but who don't really know how to go about getting it. You know, one of the things that came up a lot in the study was at many Catholic colleges, you can take a marriage and family class, except the students feel like marriage and family is about 10 years into their future. So they don't, you know, whereas they'll talk about marriage and family because they don't know where else to talk about relationships in the context of their faith. It also feels very far away, and it has nothing to do with the lives they're living now. And so what they really want, and part of why I taught a dating class in the first place was because you know what they really want is to figure out, well, what does my faith teach me about the here and now and And that's really what they're not hearing. And so one of the things that really distinguishes evangelical youth culture is the fact that it has a youth culture. and you have um, one of the things that evangelical young adults uh, really grow into and then uh, really empower themselves with is, you know, this culture of peers who are talking to peers about how you live out your life in the context of your faith. And there's books and there's songs and there's, you know, I mean, they, they do all sorts of amazing creative programs and um and different, you know, creative things that... To get were... communication started. Yes, and so... It seems like nobody else has, has really figured that out yet. And so that was one of the things that I think really set apart the evangelical youth from everyone else was that they really did have a lot of resources. And what I saw at other campuses was a lot of students who were longing for those kinds of resources to fit their own lives.
0: Now, uh, we talked a little bit or we haven't gotten to uh, sexual minorities who, who were present in all fi- four types of institutions that you researched. So tell me about the gay and lesbian students and their views on sex and the soul.
1: Well, I feel like there are so many different big conversations we're touching on. Um, They have to read your book. (laughs) (laughs) There were uh, about 10% of the population of students who did the survey and who did the interviews um, identified as gay, uh, lesbian, or bisexual. And in uh, many cases with regard to hookup culture, students felt the same kinds of pressures that you know hetero you know like gay lesbian and bisexual students felt the same kinds of pressure that heterosexual students felt on campus um, i think where some of the the stress or the interesting conversations really came about was when we talked about spirituality and religion and i think people people generally assume that Uh, that gay, lesbian, bisexual students experience a lot of stress with regard to religion and spirituality. And that was true for some students, but not across the board. And so I would say that I really saw, you know, I saw very extreme examples of students who were incredibly stressed and and really shattered because they um, were, you know, they felt like identifying as gay and, you know, being a Christian was just an impossible situation. And they felt torn between two selves in many ways. You know, one of the students that I met was this very out, bisexual, feminist, agnostic student at an evangelical campus. Everybody knew her sexual orientation, and everyone talked to her about it. And she knew she was thinking about all sorts of things and wondering how this would all add up. But, you know, she had a huge support network to talk about it. Um, So I really saw the range. If I had to put or identify one trend among the students, I would say that Students who identify as gay, lesbian, or bisexual generally felt much more stress in the context of the institutional organizational aspect of their, you know, of a religion. And did seem to identify spirituality at, or the more personal, you know, private uh, space that they were identifying in their faith life as a much safer space. Than the, to, the religious institution. Yeah, in terms of to navigate sexual orientation in the context of their, their faith life what advice would you have for college
0: students seeking what you call a sexy spirituality?
1: I would say that in general, whether it's, you know, students or faculty, staff, campus ministry, we just need to get more creative in how we think about, you know, spirituality and religion on campus in relation to these issues. You know, if you think about the Catholic, I keep talking about Catholicism because we heard Fordham, but, um, you know, people tend, I think, are used to just going to certain Vatican documents to talk about sex or, you know, the usual suspects. And, you know, to me that's, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but that's a total dead end. <laughs> and, you know, really where there's a lot of really interesting um sp- space for movement and reconciliation, I think, between sexuality and spirituality is in all these different, you know, the Catholic tradition comes with, like, thousands of years of amazing spiritual practices. So, for example, like, discerning a vocation or spiritual direction. And it doesn't occur to us to apply those things to hookup culture, for example. But um, it's just the tiniest little shift, and suddenly they become so useful, and suddenly sexuality and spirituality doesn't seem so... Um, I guess, different or distinct. And so I guess I would say that all we need to do is, is get creative um, with the practices in many ways that are already there and just think about shifting them to new contexts. So on most college campuses now we have hookup culture. So the question we need to be asking is, well, what does you know a particular tradition offer students to think about or to navigate hookup culture other than just one big no? Because if you just give them a big no, then it alienates them and um, it doesn't. it's just not useful. And so I think really our job is to sort of play around with what we've got. And what
0: advice uh, would you have for people sending their kids off to college? Yeah, some good advice in the back of the book. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I would say that um, the college campus tour should not just be about how pretty the college is and how good it is academically. Because I heard from so many students, you know, that that sex, for example, one night uh, with the wrong person or in the wrong situation could make or break your college experience, which means that, you know, hookup culture is a huge risk factor for students' college experience. And so really looking into what that culture is like on campus should be a priority if it's that you know, if it's that high risk.
0: And looking back on your research, what would you say, if you can narrow it down, what would you say surprised you the most?
1: I think what surprised me the most was the answers from the different uh, young men I spoke with. There are so many stereotypes about young men and sex and young men and religion and young men and how they must love hooking up. I was really surprised by how many young men feel just as oppressed as young women do if in different ways in terms of gender, in terms of the expectations of how young men are supposed to feel about sex or religion or whether they're supposed to find meaning or not supposed to find it. And it was really, it was really intense to hear how silenced they are about their real desires and um, how they really wish their lives and their paths and their choices could be otherwise. And so I feel like that's one of the most striking findings of the study. I want to thank Donna Friedas. Her latest book is Sex
0: and the Soul, Juggling Sexuality, Spirituality, Romance, and Religion on America's College campuses. Thank you, Donna. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcasts. Next week, Mary Wilson will be your host. Stay with us, George and Cityscaper, next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.